Welcome to the January 17th, 2023 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, and I'll be providing a quick overview of the new material you will find if you go to annals.org. First, you will find a synopsis of the latest clinical practice guideline from the Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes Organization, commonly known as CADIGO. The guideline offers advice for treating patients with both diabetes and chronic kidney disease, and the synopsis focuses on the issues most pertinent to the general care of patients with these comorbid conditions. Cadago based the recommendations on a search of relevant evidence through February 2022. Cadago recommends a layered approach to care, starting with the foundation of lifestyle interventions and first-line pharmacotherapy demonstrated to improve clinical outcomes the serial introduction of medications that improve intrarenal hemodynamics, such as RAS inhibitors, SGLT2 inhibitors, mRNAs, diuretics, and other antihypertensive medications, that healthcare providers should focus on preserving kidney function and maintaining well-being rather than replacing kidney function, and that policymakers and institutional decision-makers should implement team-based integrated care focused on risk evaluation and patient empowerment to provide comprehensive care for patients with diabetes and chronic kidney disease. Go to annals.org for details and the rationale supporting the recommendations. Next is a cohort study of more than 3,000 persons who received hydroxychloroquine for five or more years with guideline-recommended serial retinopathy screening that found that the overall risk for incident retinopathy was low, with most documented cases being mild. Higher hydroxychloroquine dose was associated with progressively greater risk. Hydroxychloroquine is recommended for patients with systemic lupus erythematosus and some other inflammatory conditions. But vision-threatening retinopathy is a serious long-term adverse effect. Guidelines based on relatively weak studies recommend keeping dosing at 5 mg per kilogram of body weight per day or lower to reduce the risk of this complication. To better understand the risks of hydroxychloroquine-related retinopathy, researchers from Kaiser Permanente Northern California and Harvard Medical School studied 3,325 persons who received hydroxychloroquine for five or more years between 2004 and 2020 to characterize the long-term risk for incident hydroxychloroquine retinopathy and examine the degree to which average hydroxychloroquine dose within the first five years of treatment predicts this risk. The researchers used pharmacy and health records to analyze hydroxychloroquine dosing and reviewed annual optical scans over time to detect retinopathy. If retinopathy was identified, it was classified as mild, moderate, or severe. The researchers then estimated the risk for developing retinopathy after 15 years according to average dosing levels during the first five years. They found that only 81 of the over 3,000 participants developed hydroxychloroquine retinopathy with the risk being greater for those given a higher dose during the first five years of treatment. The researchers note that regular screening can identify this issue at an early and treatable stage and that using the lowest effective hydroxychloroquine dose seems to minimize risk. The next article addresses post-transplant lymphoproliferative disease, a rare but serious potential complication of liver transplantation. Primary infection with the reactivation of Epstein-Barr virus can occur after liver transplant and is associated with post-transplant lymphoproliferative disease. Researchers from Leiden University and Erasmus Medical Center in the Netherlands hypothesized that a strategy of monitoring Epstein-Barr virus viral load and reducing immunosuppression accordingly could reduce incidence of post-transplant lymphoproliferative disease in adult transplant recipients. 
They studied health records for adult recipients of first liver transplant at these two medical centers to conduct a difference-in-difference analysis among four groups. Adult recipients of first liver transplant in Leiden between 2003 and 2017 who had Epstein-Barr virus viral load monitoring, recipients of first liver transplant in Rotterdam between January 2003 and January 2017 without monitoring formed a contemporary control group, and those who had transplants in Leiden between September 1992 and September 2003, or Rotterdam between 1986 and January 2003, formed two historical control groups that did not have Epstein-Barr virus viral load monitoring. The analysis showed a numerically larger within-hospital decrease in post-transplant lymphoproliferative disease in the contemporary Epstein-Barr viral load monitored group compared to the contemporary unmonitored group. According to these authors, these findings suggest that an Epstein-Barr virus viral load monitoring policy with reduction in immunosuppression in case of Epstein-Barr virus viral load detection should be considered in transplant programs to avoid over-immunosuppression and thereby reduce the incidence of post-transplant lymphoproliferative disease. Migraine affects around 1 billion people worldwide, with up to 15% of adults in the United States having migraine attacks in any given year. More than 90% of patients with a recurrent headache presenting to primary care offices and emergency departments have migraine. Migraine is associated with high socioeconomic and personal impact. Diagnostic uncertainty increases the likelihood of unnecessary investigations and suboptimal manage. This month in the clinic advises clinicians about diagnosing migraine, ruling out secondary headache disorders, developing effective treatment plans, non-medication treatments, acute medications, and preventive medications, and deciding when to refer a patient with migraine headache to a specialist. Go to annals.org to read the In the Clinic article and obtain CME and MOC credit by taking the accompanying quiz. In Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, the Supreme Court decided that the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion and that the authority to regulate abortion is to be returned to the people and their elected representatives. In doing so, the Supreme Court raised a series of questions for reproductive care, including what to do when abortion may be necessary to preserve the health or life of the pregnant person. Are states that amend laws to restrict abortion without robust exceptions violating the Federal Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act? Does the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act preempt contrary state law? Preemption refers to the Supremacy Clause in Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution. The next article is a commentary that discusses these issues. And the second commentary also addresses potential implications of the Supreme Court abortion decision. In the wake of the decision, dozens of states have moved to restrict access to abortion, with several banning abortion at all stages of pregnancy, except when the pregnant person faces immediate threat of death or permanent disability. Anti-abortion activists and lawmakers argue that these laws protect fetuses' right to life and that more permissive abortion laws confer an outrageous right to kill unborn human life. The authors of this next commentary argue that, strictly speaking, abortion does not even require killing. Physicians can perform labor induction abortions as early as 12 weeks after conception using the same medications as they would in full-term pregnancy to kickstart labor and delivery. Labor induction abortion does not destroy or directly damage the fetus's body. The fetus dies because it cannot survive without the constant use of another person's body and resources. Thus, if the fetus is considered to be a person choosing abortion, 
by any method before fetal viability is fundamentally a choice to stop giving someone use of your body to save them from death, not to maliciously destroy an independent human life. The commentary authors go on to say that if states can force a living person to give up control of their body to save just one life, then they could also use the same rationale to require extraction and redistribution of organs from a deceased person for an even greater social benefit. Unlike pregnancy, the brain-dead person experiences no risk or burdens, and their organs could save the lives of up to eight people. They go further to speculate that states willing to compel pregnancy should also be willing to compel healthy, non-pregnant citizens to sign up for a draft to serve as living organ donors to save the life of a person who is waiting for an organ. Also, since frequent shortages of blood, bone marrow, and other regenerating tissues threaten the lives and health of thousands, states prohibiting early termination of pregnancy could also use the same rationale to mandate tissue donation on a rotating basis. The commentary is thought-provoking and likely to generate controversy. Go to annals.org to read it and comment on it. Also new on annals.org are the latest episodes of Annals Consult Guides and the Annals on Call podcast. The Consult Guides discuss the care of a patient with left ventricular thrombus, and this episode of Annals on Call features a conversation about endemic mycoses. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you go to annals.org for a closer look at some of this new material. Thanks to Beth Jacobson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support.